Anselm gets his chance. The summer Sunday was drawing to a close. Twilight had fallen on the little garden of the angler's rest, and the air was fragrant with the sweet scent of jasmine and tobacco plant. Stars were peeping out. Blackbirds sang drowsily in the shrubberies. Bats wheeled through the shadows, and a gentle breeze played fitfully among the hollyhocks. It was, in short, as a customer who had looked in for a gin and tonic rather happily put it, a nice evening. Nevertheless, to Mr. Mulliner and the group assembled in the bar parlor of the inn, there was a sense of something missing. It was due to the fact that Miss Postlethwaite, the efficient barmaid, was absent. Some forty minutes had elapsed before she arrived and took over from the pot boy. When she did, the quiet splendor of her costume and the devout manner in which she pulled the, pulled the beer handle told her own story. You've been to church, said a penetrating sherry in Angostura. Mrs. Poslethwaite said, yes, she had, and it had been lovely. Beautiful in every sense of the word, said Miss Poslethwaite, filling an order for a pint of bitter. I do adore evening service in the summer. It sort of does something to you, what I mean. All that stilly hush and what not. The vicar preached the sermon, I suppose, said Mr. Mulliner. Yes, said Miss Fosselthwaite, adding that it had been extremely moving. Mr. Mulliner took a thoughtful sip of his hot scotch and lemon. The old, old story, he said, with a touch of sadness in his voice. I do not know if you gentlemen were aware of it. But, the, but the, in the rural districts of England, vicars always preach the evening sermon during the summer months, and this causes a great deal of discontent to seethe among the curates. It exasperates the young fellows, and one can understand their feelings. As Miss Postlethwaite rightly says, there is something about the atmosphere of evensong in a village church that induces a receptive frame of mind in a congregation, and a preacher preaching under such conditions can seriously fail to grip and stir. The curates withheld from so preaching naturally feel that they are being grown beneath the heel of an iron monopoly and chiseled out of their great chance. A whiskey and splash said he had never thought of that. In that respect, said Mr. Mulliner, you differ from my cousin Rupert's younger son, Anselm. He thought of it a great deal. He was the curate of the parish of Rising Maddock in Hampshire. And when he was not dreaming fondly of Myrtle Jellaby, niece of Sir Leopold Jellaby, OBE, the local squire, you would generally find him chafing at his victor's high-handed selfishness and always hogging the evening sermon from late in April until well on in September. He told me once that he f made him feel like a caged skylark. <laughs> Why did he dream fondly of Myrtle Jellaby, asked a stout and mild, who was not very quick on the uptake. Because he loved her, and she loved him. She had indeed consented to become his wife. They were engaged, said the stout and mild, beginning to get it, <laughs> secretly. Anselm did not dare inform her uncle of the position of affairs, because all he had to marry on was his meager stipend. 
He feared the wrath of that millionaire philatelist. Millionaire what? asked the Saul Bass. Sir Leopold, explained Mr. Molliner, collected stamps. The small bass said he had always thought that a philatelist was a man who was kind to animals. <coughs> no, said Mr. Molliner, a stamp collector. Though many philatelists are, I believe, also kind to animals. <laughs> Sir Leopold Jollibee had been devoted to this hobby for many years. Ever since he had retired from business as a promoter of companies in the city of London, his collection was famous. And Amelia didn't like to tell him about Myrtle, asked the Scot in mild. No, as I say, he lacked the courage. He pursued instead the cautious policy of lying low and hoping for the best. And one bright summer day, the happy ending seemed to have arrived. Myrtle calling, Myrtle calling at the vicarage at breakfast time found Anselm dancing round the table, in one hand a half-consumed piece of toast, in the other a letter, and learned from him that under the will of his late godfather, the recently deceased Mr. J.G. Beanstalk, he had, been he had benefited by an unexpected legacy, to wit, the stout stamp album, which now lay beside the marmalade dish. The information caused the girl's face to light up, continued Mr. Mulliner. A philatelist's niece, she knew how valuable these things could be. What's it worth, she asked eagerly. It is insured, I understand, for no less a sum than 5,000 pounds. Golly, golly, indeed, assented Mulliner. Nice sugar, said Myrtle. Exceedingly nice, said, replied, agreed Anselm. You must take care of it. Don't leave it lying about. We don't want somebody pinching it. A look of pain passed over An Anselm's spiritual face. You are not suggesting that the vicar would stoop to such an act. I was thinking more, said Myrtle, of Joe Beamish. She was alluding to a member of her loved one's little flock, who had at one time been a fairly prosperous burglar. <laughs> Seeing the light after about 16 prison sentences... <laughs> He had given up his life work and now raised vegetables and sang in the choir. <laughs> Old Joe is supposed to have re reformed and got away from it all, but if you ask me, there's a lot of life in the old dog yet. If he gets to hear that there's a 5,000-pound stamp al album uh, collection lying around, I think you wrong our worthy Joe, darling. However, I will take precautions. I shall place the album in a drawer in the desk in the vicar's study. It is provided with a stout lock. And before doing so, I thought I might take it round and show it to your uncle. It is possible that he may feel disposed to make an offer for the collection. That's a thought, agreed Myrtle. Soak him good. I will assuredly miss no effort to that end, said Os Anselm. And kissing Myrtle fondly, he went about his parochial duties. It was towards evening that he called upon Sir Leopold and the kindly old squire, learning the nature of his errand and realizing that he had not come to make a touch on behalf of the church organ fund, lost the rather strained look which had, he had worn when his name was announced and greeted him warmly. Stamps, yes, I'm always ready to add to my collection, Provided that I am offered as a value and the right price reasonable, 
Had you any figure in mind for, the, for, for these of yours, Mr. Mightier Mulliner? Anselm said he had been thinking of something in the neighborhood of 5,000 pounds, and Sir Leopold shook from stem to stern like a cat that has received half a brick in the short ribs. <laughs> All his life, the suggestion that he should part with large sums of money had shocked him. Oh, he said, then seemed to master himself with a strong effort. Well, let me look at him. Ten minutes later, he had closed the volume and was eyeing Anselm compassionately. I'm afraid you must be prepared for bad news, my boy. A sickening feeling of apprehension gripped Anselm. You mean they're not valuable? Sir Leopold put the tips of his fingers together and leaned back in his chair in the rather pontifical manner which he had been accustomed to assume in the old days when addressing meetings of shareholders. The term valuable, my dear fellow, is a relative one. To some people, five pounds would be a large sum. Five pounds? That is what I am prepared to offer. Or, seeing that you are a personal friend, shall we say ten? But they're insured for five thousand. Sir Leopold shook his head with a half-smile. My dear Mulliner, if you knew as much about the vanity of stamp collectors, you would not set great store by that. Well, as I say, I don't mind giving you ten pounds for the lot. Think it over and let me know. On leaden feet, Anselm left the room. His hopes were shattered. He felt like a man who, chasing rainbows, has had one of them suddenly turn and bite him in the leg. <laughs> well, said Myrtle, who had been waiting the awaiting the result of the conference in the passage. Anselm broke the sad news. <clears throat> the girl was astounded. But you told me the thing was insured for? Anselm sighed. Your uncle appeared to attribute little or no importance to that. It seems that stamp collectors are in the habit of insuring their collections for fantastic sums out of a spirit of vanity. I intend, said Anselm broodingly, to preach a very strong sermon shortly on the subject of vanity. <laughs> there was a silence. Ah, well, said Anselm, these things are no doubt sent to try us. It is by accepting such blows in a meek and chastened spirit. Meek and chastened spirit, my left eyeball, cried Myrtle, <laughs> who, like so many girls today, was apt to be unguarded in her speech. We've got to do something about this. But what? I'm not denying, said Anselm, that the shock has been a severe one, and I regret to confess that there was a moment when I was sorely tempted to utter one or two of the observations which I once heard the coach of my college boat at Oxford make to number one when he persisted obtruding his abdomen as he swung his oar. It would have been wrong. It would have but it would have unquestionably have relieved my... I know, cried Myrtle, Joe Beamish. Anselm stared at her. Joe Beamish, I don't understand you, dear. <clears throat> use your bean, boy, use your bean. You remember what I told you. All you've got to do is let old Joe know where those stamps are, and he will take over from there. <laughs> and there we shall be with our nice little claim for 5,000 of the best on the insurance company. Myrtle. It would be money for jam, the enthusiastic girl continued. Just so much velvet. Go and see Joe at once. Myrtle, I beg you, desist. You shock me. 
inexpressibly. She gazed at him incredulously. You mean you won't do it? I could not even contemplate such a course. You won't unleash old Joe and set him acting for the best? Certainly not. Most decidedly not. A thousand times no. But what's wrong with the idea? The whole project is ethically unsound. There was a pause. For a moment it seemed as if the girl was about to express her chagrin in an angry outburst. A frown darkened her brow, and she kicked petulantly at a passing beetle. Then she appeared to get the better of her emotion. Her face cleared, and she smiled at him tenderly, like a mother at her fractious child. Oh, all right, just as you say. Where are you off to now? <laughs> I have a mother's meeting at six. And I, said Merzel, have got to take a few pints of soup to the deserving poor. I'd better set about it. <clears throat> Amazing the way these bimbos absorb soup like sponges. <laughs> they walked together as far as the village hall. Anselm went in to meet the mothers. Myrtle... As soon as he was out of sight, turned and made her way to Joe Beamish's cozy cottage. The crooning of a hymn from which within, showing that its owner was at home, she walked through its honeysuckle-covered porch. Well, Joe, old top, she said, how's everything? Joe Beamish was knitting a sock in the tiny living room, <laughs> which smelled in equal proportions of mice, ex-burglars, and shag tobacco. And Myrtle, as her gaze fell upon his rugged cheek, uh, rugged features, felt her heart leap within her like that of the poet Wordsworth when beholding a rainbow in the sky. <laughs> his altered circumstances had not changed the erstwhile porch climber's outward appearance. It remained that of one of those men for whom the police are always spreading dragnets. And Myrtle, eyeing him, had the feeling that in supposing that in, his preeminent, that in this preeminent plug ugly, there still lurked something of the old Adam she had called her shots correctly. For some minutes after her entry, the conversation was confined to neutral topics, the weather, the sock, and the mice behind the wainscoting. It was only when it turned to the decorations of the church for the forthcoming Harvest Festival, to which she learned her host would be in a position to contribute two cabbages and a pumpkin, that Myrtle saw her opportunity of approaching a more intimate subject. Mr. Molliner will be pleased about that, she said. He's nuts on the Harvest Festival. Ah, oh, said Joe Beamish. He's a good man, Mr. Molliner. He's a lucky man, said Myrtle. Have you heard what's just happened to him? Some sort of deceased beanstalk has gone and left him 5,000 quid. Coo, is that right? Well, it comes to the same thing. An album of stamps that worth, that's worth 5,000. You know how valuable stamps are. Why, my uncle's collection is worth ten times that. That's why we've got all those burglar arms up at the hall. A rather twisted expression came into Joe Beamish's face. I've heard there's a lot of burglar alarms up at the Aldi's end. But there aren't any at the vicarage, and between you and me, Joe, it's worrying me, rather. Because, you see, that's where Mr. Mulliner is keeping his 
stamps. Ah, said Joe Beamish, speaking now with a thoughtful intonation. I told him you ought to keep them at his bank. Joe Beamish started. Whatever you say, go and say a thing like that for, he said. It wasn't at all silly, said Myrtle warmly. It was just ordinary common sense. I don't consider those stamps are safe. Left lying in a drawer in the desk in the vicar's study. <laughs> that little room on the ground floor to the right of the front door. <laughs> with its flimsy French windows that could so easily be forced with a chisel or something. They're locked up, of course, but what good are locks? I've seen these and anybody could open them with a hairpin. I tell you, Joe, I'm worried. <laughs> Joe Beamish bent over his socks, knitting and purling for a while in silence. When he spoke again, it was to talk of pumpkins and cabbages and... After that, for he was a man of limited means, of cabbages and pumpkins. <clears throat> and so Mulliner, meanwhile, was passing through a day of no little spiritual anguish. At the moment when it had been made, Myrtle's proposal had shaken him to his foundations. He had not felt so utterly unmanned since the evening when he had been giving young Willie Purvis a boxing lesson at the lads' club, and Willie, by a happy accident, had got home squarely on the button. <clears throat> this revelation of the character of the girl to whom he had given a curious unspotted heart had stunned him. Myrtle, it seemed to him, appeared to have no notion whatever of the distinction between right and wrong. And while this would not have mattered, of course, had he been a gunman and she his perceptive mull, it would have made a, it made a great deal of difference to one who hoped later on to become a vicar, and in such event would want his wife to look after the parish funds. He wondered what the prophet Isaiah would have had to say about it, had he been informed of her views on strategy and tactics. <clears throat> All through the afternoon and evening he continued to brood on the thing. At supper that night, he was so distrait and preoccupied. He was distrait and preoccupied. Busy with his own reflections, he scarcely listened to the conversation of the Reverend Sidney Gooch, his vicar. And this was perhaps fortunate, for it was a Saturday, and the vicar, as was his custom at Saturday suppers, harped a good deal on the subject of the sermon which he was proposing to live at even, give at Evensong on the morrow. He said not once but many times that he confidently expected if the fine weather held up to knock his little flock cockeyed. <laughs> the Reverend Sidney was a fine, upstanding specimen of the muscular Christian, but somewhat deficient in tact. Towards nightfall, however, Anselm found a kindlier, mellower note creeping into his meditations. Possibly it was the excellent round of beef of which he had partaken and the wholesome ale with which he had washed it down that caused this softer mood. As he smoked his after-supper cigarette, he found himself beginning to relax in his austere attitude towards Myrtle's feminine weakness. He reminded himself that it must be placed to her credit that she had not been obdurate. On the contrary, the moment he had made plain his disapproval of her financial methods, conscience had awakened, 
her better self had prevailed, and she had abandoned her dubious schemes. That was much. Happy once more, he went to bed, and after dipping into a good book for half an hour, switched off the light and fell into a restful sleep. But it seemed to him that he had scarcely done so when he was awakened by loud noises. He sat up, listening. Something in the nature of a free-for-all appeared to be in progress in the lower part of the house. His knowledge of the vicarage's topography suggested to him that the noises were protruding from the study, and hastily donning a dressing gown, he made his way thither. The room was in darkness, but he found the switch, and turning on the light, perceived that the odd groaning sound which had greeted him as he approached the door proceeded from the Reverend Sidney Gooch. The, gift, the vicar was sitting on the floor, a hand pressed to his left eye. A burglar, he said, rising, a beastly bounder of a burglar. He has injured you, I fear, said Anselm commiseratingly. Of course he has injured me, said the Reverend Sidney, with some testiness. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Proverbs six twenty-seven. <laughs> I heard a sound and came down and seized the fellow, and he struck me so violently that I was compelled to loosen my grip, and he made his escape through the window. Be so kind, mothers, to look about and see if he has taken anything. There were some manuscript sermons which I should not care to lose. <laughs> Anselm was standing beside the desk. He had to pause for a moment in order to control his voice. The only object that appears to have been removed, he said, is an album of stamps belonging to myself. The sermons are there, still there. <laughs> bitter, said the vicar, bitter. I beg your pardon, said Anselm. He turned. His superior of the cloth was standing before a mirror, regarding himself in it with a rueful stare. Bitter. He repeated. I was thinking, he explained, of the one I had planned to deliver at Evensong tomorrow. A Pippin, mother, in the deepest and truest sense of Pippin. I am not exaggerating when I say that I would have had them tearing up the pews. And now that dream is ended. I cannot possibly appear in the pulpit with a shiner like this. It would put the wrong ideas into the heads of the congregation always in these rural communities, prone to place the worst construction on such disfigurements. Tomorrow, Mulliner, I shall be confined to my bed with a slight chill, and you will conduct both matins and evensong. Bitter, said Reverend Sidney Gooch. Bitter. Anselm did not speak. His heart was too full for words. In Anselm's deportment and behavior on the following morning, <clears throat> there was nothing to indicate that his soul was a maelstrom of seething emotions. Most curates who find themselves unexpectedly allowed to preach on Sunday evening in the summertime are like dogs let off the chain. They leap, they bound, they sing snatches of the more rollicking psalms. They rush about saying, good morning, good morning to everybody and patting children on the head. Not so, Anselm. He knew that only by conserving his nervous energies would he be able to give of his best when the great moment came. To those of the congregation who were still awake in the later stages 
of the service. His sermon at Matins seemed dull and colorless. And so it was. He had no intention of frittering away, frittering away elegance on a Monday sermon, on a morning sermon. He deliberately held himself back, concentrating every fiber of his being on the address which he was to deliver in the evening. He had had it by him for months. Every curate throughout the English countryside keeps tucked away among his effects a special sermon designed to prevent him being caught short if suddenly called upon to preach at evensong. And all through the afternoon he had remained closeted in his room, working upon it. He pruned, he polished, he searched the thesaurus for the telling adjective. By the time the church bells began to ring out over the fields and spinneys of rising mattock in the quiet gloaming, his masterpiece was perfected to the last comma. Feeling more like a volcano than a curate, Anselm Mulliner pinned together the sheets of manuscript and set forth. The conditions could not have been happier. By the end of the brief sermon hymn, the twilight was far advanced, and through the door of the little church there poured the scent of trees and flowers. All was still save for the distant tinkling of sheep bells and the drowsy calling of rooks among the elms. With quiet confidence, Anselm mounted the pulpit steps. He had been sucking throat pastilles all day and saying me, me, me to himself in an undertone throughout the service, and he knew he would be in good voice. For an instant, he paused and gazed about him. He was rejoiced to see that he was playing to absolute capacity. Every pew was full. There in the squire's high-backed stall were Sir Leopold Jollaby, OBE, with Myrtle at his side. There among the choir, looking indescribably foul in a surplice, sat Joe Beamish. <laughs> there in their respective places were the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and all the others who make up the personnel made up the personnel of the congregation. With a little sigh of rapture, Anselm cleared his throat and gave out the simple text of brotherly love. I have been privileged, said Mr. Mulliner, to read the script of this sermon of Anselm's, and it must, I can see, have been extremely powerful. Even in manuscript form, without the added attraction of the young man's beautifully modulated tenor voice, one can clearly sense its magic. Beginning with a thoughtful excursus on brotherly love among the Hivites and the Hittites, <laughs> it came down through the early Britons, the Middle Ages, and the spacious days of Queen Elizabeth to these modern times of ours. And it was here that Anselm Mulliner really let himself go. It was at this point, if one may employ the phrase, that he, in the best and most reverent, spirit of the words, reached for the accelerator and stepped on it. <laughs> Earnestly, in accents throbbing with emotion, he spoke of our duty to one another, of the task that lies clear before us all to make this a better and sweeter world for our fellows, of the joy that waits those who give no thought to self but strain every nerve to the square thing by one and all, 
and with each golden phrase he held his audience in an ever-tightening grip. Tradesmen who had been nodding somnolently woke up and sat with parted lips. Women dabbed at their eyes with handkerchiefs. Choir boys who had been sucking acid drops swallowed them remorsefully and stopped shuffling their feet. Even at a morning service, such a sermon would have been a smash hit. Delivered in the gloaming with all its adventitious age to success, it was a riot. It was not immediately after the conclusion of the proceedings that Anselm was able to tear himself away from the crowd of admirers that surged round him in the vestry. There were church warders who wanted to shake his hand, other church wardens who insisted on smacking him on the back. One even asked for his autograph. But eventually he laughingly shook himself free and made his way back to the vicarage. And scarcely had he passed through the garden gate when something shot out at him from the scented darkness, and he found Myrtle Jellaby in his arms. Anselm, she cried, my wonder man, how ever did you do it? I never heard such a sermon in my life. It got across, I think, said Anselm modestly. It was terrific. Golly, when you admonish a congregation, it stays admonished. How you think of all these things beats me. Oh, they come to one. And another thing I can't understand is how you came to be preaching at all in the evening. I thought you told me the vicar always did. The vicar began, Anselm has met with a slight, and then it suddenly occurred to him that in the excitement of being allowed to preach at evensong, he had quite forgotten to inform Myrtle of that other important happening, <clears throat> the theft of the stamp album. A rather extraordinary thing occurred last night, darling, he said. The vicarage was puzzled. Myrtle was amazed. Not really. Yes, a marauder broke in through the study window. Well, fancy that. Did he take anything? He took my collection of stamps. Myrtle uttered a cry of ecstasy. Then we collect. <laughs> Anselm did not speak for a moment. I wonder... What do you mean, you wonder? Of course we collect. Shoot the claim into the insurance people without a moment's delay. But have you reflected, dearest? Am I justified in doing as you suggest? Of course, why ever not? It seems to me a moot point. The collection you know is worthless. Can I justly demand of this firm, the London and Midland Counties Aid and Benefit Association is its name, that they pay me 5000 for an album of stamps that is without value? Of course you can. Old Beanstalk paid the premium, didn't he? <laughs> that is true. Yes, I, I had forgotten that. It doesn't matter whether a thing's valuable or not. The point is what you, can ins what you insure it for. And it isn't as if it's going to hurt these mutual aid and benefit birds to brass up. It's sinful the amount of money those insurance companies have. Must be jolly bad for them, if you ask me. <laughs> Anselm had not thought of that. Examining the point now, it seemed to him that Myrtle, with her woman's intuition, had rather gone to the root of the matter and touched the spot. Was there not, he asked himself, a great deal to be said for this theory of hers that insurance companies had 
much too much money and would be better, finer, more spiritual insurance companies <laughs> if somebody came along occasionally and took a bit of the stuff off of them. Unquestionably there was. His doubts were removed. He saw now that it was not only a pleasure but a duty to nick the London and Midland Counties Mutual Aid and Benefit Association for 5000 It might prove to be the turning point in the lives of its board of directors. Very well, he said. I will send in the claim. Atta boy, and the instant we touch we'll get married. Myrtle, Anselm. Governor, said the voice of Joe Beamish, <laughs> at this side, could I have a word with you? They drew apart with a start and stared dumbly at the man. Governor, said Lord, Lord Joe Beamish, and it was plain from the thickness of his utterance that he was in the grip of a, some strong emotion. I want to thank you, Governor, for that there sermon of yours, that there wonderful sermon. Anselm smiled. He had recovered from the shock of hearing his, this sudden voice in the night. It was a nuisance, of course, to be interrupted like this at such a moment, but one must, he felt, be courteous to the fans. No doubt he would have to expect a lot of this sort of thing from now on. I am rejoiced that my poor effort should have elicited so striking an encomium. What's I? <laughs> <coughs> He says he's glad you likes it, said Myrtle a little irritably. She was not feeling her most amiable. A young girl who is nesting in the arms of the man she loves resents having cracksmen popping up through traps at her elbow. Ah, oh, said Joe Beamish in Lighton. Yes, Governor, that was a sermon, that was. That was what I call a blinking sermon. Thank you, Joy, thank you. It is nice to feel that you were pleased. You're right, I was pleased, Governor. I've heard sermons in Pentonville, and I've heard sermons in Wilmot Scrubs, and I've heard sermons in Dartmoor, and very good sermons they were. But of all the sermons I've ever heard, I never heard one sermon that could touch this here sermon for class and pep and Joe, said Myrtle. Yes, lady, scram. <laughs> Pardon, lady? Get out, pop off, buzz along. Can't you see you're not wanted? We're busy. My dear, said Anselm, with gentle reproach, is not your manner a little peremptory? <laughs> I would not have the honest fellow feel, ah, oh, interrupted Joe Bimish, and there was a suggestion of unshed tears in his voice, but I'm not an honest fellow, Governor. There, if you don't mind my saying so, no offense meant, and none I hope taken, is where you make your bloomin' mistake. I'm a poor sinner and backslider and evildoer. Joe, said Myrtle with a certain menacing calm. <laughs> if you get a thick ear, always remember that you asked for it. The same applies to a lump the size of an egg on top of your ugly head through coming into violent contact with the knob of my parasol. Will you or will you not, she said, taking a firmer grip of the, ba uh, the handle on the, uh, of the weapon to which she had alluded, push off? Lie, said Joe Beamish not without a certain rough dignity. As soon as I've done what I come to do, I will withdraw. But first I got to do what I come to do. And what I come to do is end back in a meek and contrite spirit this year album of stamps. 
what I snitched last night, never thinking that I was to hear that there wonderful sermon and see the light. But having heard that there wonderful sermon and seen the light, I now have great pleasure in doing what I come to do, namely, said Joe Beamish, thrusting the late J.G. Beanstalk's stamp collection into Anselm's hand. This ear, lady, governor, with these few words, open that you are in the pink as it leaves me at present, I will now withdraw. Stop, said Anselm. Huh? Anselm's face was strangely contorted. He spoke with difficulty. Joe, yes, governor. Joe, I would like, I would prefer, in a very real sense, I do so feel, in short, uh, I would like you to keep this stamp album, Joe. <laughs> the burglar shook his head. No, governor, it can't be done. When I think of that, there wonderful sermon, all these beautiful things you said in that, there wonderful sermon about the Evites and the Itites and... <laughs> Doing the right thing by the neighbors and helping as far as your new lives to spread sweetness and light throughout the world. I can't keep no albums what have, which have come into my possession through getting in at other fellows' French windows on account of not having seen the light. <laughs> it don't belong to me, not that album don't. And I now take much pleasure in ending it back with these few words. Good night, Governor. Good night, Lady. Good night, all I will now withdraw. His footsteps died away, and there was silence in the quiet garden. Both Anselm and Myrtle were busy with their thoughts. Once more through Anselm's mind there was racing that pithy address which the poach of his college boat had delivered when trying to do justice to the spectacle of, of Number Five's obtrusive stomach, while Myrtle on her side was endeavoring not to give utterance to a rough translation of something she had once heard a French taxi driver say to a gendarme during her finishing school days <clears throat> in Paris. Anselm was the first to speak. This, dearest, he said, calls for discussion. One does so feel that little or nothing would be accomplished without earnest thought in a frank round-table conference. Let us go indoors and thresh the whole matter out in as calm a spirit as we can achieve. He led the way to the study and seated himself moodily, his chin in his hands, his brow furrowed. A deep sigh escaped him. I understand now, he said, why it is that curates are not allowed to preach, not permitted to preach on Sunday evenings during the summer months. It is not safe. It is like exploding a bomb in a public place. It upsets existing conditions too violently. When I reflect that had our good vicar been but able to take evensong tonight, this distressing thing would have not have occurred. I find myself saying in the words of the prophet Hosea to the children of Abdullam, putting the prophet Hosea to one side for the moment and temporarily pigeonholing the children of Abdullam, interrupted Myrtle, what are we going to do about this? Anselm sighed again. Alas, dearest, there you have me. I presume that it is no longer feasible to acclaim, to submit a claim to the London and Midland County, Counties Mutual Aid and Benefit Association. So we lose 5,000 of the best and brightest. Anselm winced, the lines deepening on his careworn face. 
It is not an agreeable thing to contemplate, I agree. One had been looking on the sum as one's little nest egg. One did so want to see it safely in the bank, to be invested later in sound income-bearing securities. I've confessed to feeling a little vexed with Joe Beamish. I hope he chokes. <laughs> I would not go so far as that, darling, said Elmselm with loving rebuke. But I must admit that if I heard that he had tripped over a loose shoelace and sprained his ankle, it would, in the deepest and truest sense, be all right with me. <laughs> I deplore the man's tactless impulsiveness. Officious is the word that springs to the lips. Myrtle was musing. Listen, she said, why not play a little joke on these London and Midland bozos? Why tell them you've got the stamps back? Why not sit, sit back and sit tight and send in the claim and pouch their check? That would be a lot of fun. <laughs> Again, for the second time in two days, Anselm found himself looking a little askance at his loved one. Then he reminded himself that she was scarcely to be blamed for her somewhat unconventional outlook. The niece of a prominent financier, she was perhaps entitled to be somewhat eccentric in her views. No doubt her earliest childhood memories were of coming down to dessert and hearing her elders discuss over the nuts and wine some burgeoning scheme for trimming the investors. <laughs> he shook his head. I could hardly countenance such a policy, I fear. To me there seems something, I do not wish to hurt your feelings, dearest, but something almost dishonest about what you suggest. <laughs> Besides, he added meditatively, when Joe Beamish handed back that album, he did it in the presence of witnesses. Witnesses? Yes, dearest. As he came into the house, I observed a shadowy figure. Who it was, I cannot say, but at this I feel convinced that this person whoever he may have been, heard all. You're sure? Quite sure. He was standing beneath the cedar tree with an easy upshot. And, as you know, our worthy Beamish's voice is a, of a robust and carrying timber. He broke off. Unable to restrain her pent-up feelings any longer, Myrtle Jellaby had uttered the words which the taxi driver had said to the gendarme. <laughs> And there was that about them which might have rendered a tougher curate than Anselm temporarily incapable of speech. <laughs> a throbbing silence followed the ejaculation, and during this silence there came to, the ear, to their ears from the garden <clears throat> without a curious sound. Hark, said Myrtle. They listened. What they heard was unmistakably a human being sobbing, some fellow creature in trouble, said Anselm. Thank goodness, said Myrtle. <laughs> Should we go and ascertain the sufferer's identity? Let's, said Myrtle. I have an idea it may be Joe Beamish, in which case what I'm going to him, do to him with my parasol will be nobody's business. But the mourner was not Joe Beamish, who had long since gone off to the goose and grasshopper. <laughs> to Anselm, who was short-sighted, the figure leaning against the figure tree, the, the cedar tree, shaking with uncontrollable sobs, was indistinct and unrecognizable. But Myrtle, keener-eyed, ushered, uttered 
a cry of surprise. Uncle! Uncle, I said Anselm, astonished. It is Uncle Leopold. Yes, said the OB, choking down a groan and moving away from the tree. It is I. It is that Mulner standing beside you, Myrtle. Yes, Mulner, said Sir Leopold Jellyby. You find me in tears. And why am I in tears? Because, my dear Mulliner, I am still overwhelmed by that wonderful sermon of yours on brotherly love and our duty to our neighbors. Anselm began to wonder if ever a curate had had notices like these. <laughs> oh, thanks, he said, shuffling a foot. Awfully glad you liked it. Liked it, Mulliner, is a weak term. That sermon has revolutionized my entire outlook. It has made me a different man. I wonder, Mulliner, if you can find me a pen and ink inside the house. Pen and ink? Precisely. I wish to write you a check for 10,000 pounds for that stamp collection of yours. 10,000? Come inside, said Myrtle. Come right in. <laughs> you see, said Sir Leopold, as they led him to the study and plied him with many an eager inquiry as to whether he preferred a thick nib or a thin. When you showed me those stamps yesterday, I recognized their value immediately. They would fetch 5,000 pounds anywhere, so I naturally told you they were worthless. It was one of those ordinary routine business precautions which a man is bound to take. One of the first things I remember my dear father saying to me when he sent me out to battle with the world was never give a sucker an evening break. And until now I have always striven not to do so. But your sermon tonight has made me see that there is something higher and nobler than a code of business ethics. Shall I cross the checks? If you please. No, said Myrtle. Make it open. Just as you say, my dear, you appear, said the kind old squire, smiling archly through his tears, to be showing considerable interest in the matter. Am I too infer? I love Anselm. We are engaged. Mulliner, is this so? Uh, uh, yes, said Anselm. I was meaning to tell you about that. Sir Leopold patted him on the shoulder. I could wish her no better husband. There is your check, Mulliner. The collection, as I say, is worth 5,000 pounds, but after that sermon I give you 10 freely, freely. Anselm, like one in a dream, took the oblong slip of paper and put it in his pocket. Silently, he handed the album to Sir Leopold. <clears throat> thank you, the uh, thank you, said the latter. And now, my dear fellow, I think I shall have to ask you for the loan of a clean handkerchief. My own, as you see, is completely saturated. <laughs> it was while Anselm was in, his, was in his room rummaging in the chest of drawers that a light footstep caused him to turn. Myrtle was standing in the doorway, a finger on her lip. Anselm, she whispered, have you a fountain pen? <laughs> Certainly, dearest, there should be one in this drawer. Yes, here it is. You wish me to write something. I wish you to write something. No, you wish to write something. I wish you to write something. Endorse that check here and now and give it to me, and I will motor to London tonight in my two-seater so as to be at the bank the moment it opens and deposit it. You see, I know Uncle Leopold. <laughs> he might take it into his head after he had slept on it and that sermon had worn off a bit to phone and stop payment. You know how he feels about business precautions. 
This way we shall avoid all Rani Gazoo. Anselm kissed her fondly. You think of everything, dearest, he said. How right you are. One does so wish, does one not, to avoid Rani Gazoo. This gives us 21 stories that we've recorded. Good number. <laughs>